Good morning, Calvary. So as Ben mentioned, we are in a series that I've been calling Praying with Paul. And what we'll be doing is for five weeks, we're going to be looking at five different prayers that the Apostle Paul prayed. And the goal and the hope is that as we look at these prayers, that they would shape and impact the way we pray, how we pray, what we pray for, and why we pray. One thing you've probably noticed, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, is that for as long as there has been Christians, Christians have had to deal with false teaching. They've had to address false teaching. And I know there are some here who I won't have to do much convincing to persuade that false teaching is a problem. And it is a problem. It has been, always will be. And there are a lot of ways we should respond to it. One way we should respond is by refuting it. And I know some of you love doing that. I praise God for you. But we should also pray. That should also be one of our responses. And since we're in a sermon series on prayer, and today's passage is a pray, a prayer, we're going to look at that. How do we respond to false teaching in terms of prayer? Or to put it another way, when you face false teaching, when you're in the midst of it, how should you pray? When you know other Christians in this country or other countries who are facing false teaching, how should we pray for them? That's the question we're going to be answering as we look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through 14. And as we look at that passage, I want you to see first the call to pray. Second, I want you to see the substance of that prayer. Third, I want you to see the motivation behind that prayer. And then finally, I want you to see the basis or the foundation for that motivation. So the call, the substance, the motivation, and then finally the basis. So with that, I'm going to pray, and then let's read Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through 14. Father, in your word you say that The word that comes out from your mouth will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish that for which you sent it, the purpose for why it came forth from your mouth. And so we ask now that you would speak your word from this passage through me and that it would accomplish all the purpose you have for it. God, would you do that by the power of your spirit? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
So first, the call. God is calling us to pray for believers who are holding fast to Christ in the face of false teaching. So we should pray for believers who are facing false teaching and all the while holding fast to Christ. And so we see that in verse 9, specifically the first half of verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking. So, what did Paul hear that prompted him to pray? He heard a report from a guy named Epaphras about the Colossians, the Christians in Colossae. And he heard a positive report. And we actually read about that report in the few verses before our passage. So let's read that now. Let's hear the report that Paul received. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras gives Paul this report, and the Colossians are doing pretty well. That they are clinging to Christ in the face of false teaching. And if you're wondering where the false teaching comes in, we'll get there in a moment. But one reason we know why the Colossians are doing well is that Paul praises God for them. He thanks God with joy. And this is different than, for instance, in his letter to the Galatians. If you've read Galatians, Paul goes right for the jugular and he rebukes them right away. He doesn't have much praise for them because they've drifted from the gospel. But not the Colossians. They've held fast to the gospel, at least up to this point. And so he praises and thanks God for it. If we had a chance to read the whole letter, you would get a picture of what this false teaching is that Paul is addressing and that the Colossians are going to deal with. And for obvious reasons, we're not going to read the whole letter. But you get a taste of it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. And as Ben likes to say very often, this teaching was a challenge to the sufficiency of Christ. That's a major theme. Probably the theme of Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Christ or his sufficiency. So let's look at chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So very simply, Paul gets a positive report, and when he hears that, he prays for the Colossians. And notice he doesn't just pray once, he says he prays consistently, or he doesn't cease praying for them. He makes it a habit to pray for them. And that should be striking because the Colossians are doing well. We typically think, you know, when we're in crisis mode, that's when we snap into prayer. 
And you should. I think many of you do a great job of doing that. But what's fascinating is that Paul prays for Christians who are being faithful. And so what we're seeing is that all of us, as followers of Christ, have ongoing needs for prayer. But there are certain things we just need to be consistently praying for time and time again. We need that ongoing prayer. And in some ways I think of it, it's kind of like how toddlers often need consistent encouragement to do things they already know how to do. I don't know how many times with my son we've made a fort out of our couch. We do this a lot. And the first time we did it, I showed him how to do it. I made it with him. I helped him a lot. But then after that, he figured it out. He knew how to make the fort. And so now when we do it, and he'll always ask me for help, usually I don't help that much. Most of what I'm doing is encouraging him to do what he already knows how to do, what he's already done to help him to persevere in what he's done, that he can do it. I've seen him do it dozens of times. In the same way, we need ongoing prayer, and we need to be praying for others frequently. Uh, To borrow a line from a book I had mentioned by D.A. Carson, he says, we should never put anybody down except on our prayer list. We should constantly be praying for people frequently. Second, and this might be obvious, but we can miss the obvious, we should also be praying for people, for other people. I hope that's obvious, but we should pray for other people. One thing you'll notice about Paul's prayers is over and over again, who are they for? They're for other people. Very often they're not for himself, He's praying for others. And as I noticed that, that was really convicting for me. Because I think I do okay at, say, reading my Bible, and usually after that I'll pray. But often my prayer doesn't turn into specific prayer for other people. It just kind of is with me and God, which is good, but it doesn't go far enough. It needs a transfer over to praying for others. Now at this point, I hope some of you are wondering, okay, great, David, Paul prayed, a lot. What did he pray for? Great question. Let's get into the heart or the substance of what he prayed. Paul prayed that the Colossians would know God's will. In other words, God, Paul prayed that God would fill them with a knowledge of his will. Look at the second half of verse 9. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I want you to notice in that part of the verse the word that. That word is a clue telling us that Paul is about to tell us what he prayed for, which we just read. It'd be like me saying, or somebody saying rather, David said that. And you want to know, well, what did he say? David said that he loves Kimberly. So that's telling us what Paul prayed for. And he prayed very straightforwardly that they would know God's will. And this is something that we can get sometimes a little bit wrong. And oftentimes we can get really wrong is when we try to understand what God's will is. We make the mistake of thinking that God's will is primarily, we primarily understand it in terms of vocational decisions. That's like praying to God, God, tell me who I should marry. God, tell me what job I should take. God, tell me what city to live in. But when the Bible talks about God's will, that really isn't what it's talking about. God's will in Scripture is really synonymous with God's commands. 
what he's calling us to do. For instance, look at Psalm 143, verse 10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. One commentator noted on this verse that the psalmist already knows what God's will is. He's not asking that God would reveal his will to him. He's asking God to make him do it. He knows what God's will is. Or, for instance, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So we have command, 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 more commands. And that's God's will. So what we need to do is we need to stop asking, God, what is your will for my life? Instead, we need to be asking, God, how do I fit my life into your will, into what you commanded me to do? And the only way we're going to figure that out is by having a steady diet of Scripture, a steady diet of God's Word. And in many ways, it is a lot like eating. But the question really isn't, will I eat today or not? It's, what am I going to eat? And you can either fill your life with good, nutritious food, or you can fill it with junk food and suffer the consequences. And in the same way, we will be filled with something. And if we aren't filling our minds and our hearts and our souls with God's word, something else will fill it. And from that, we will look to whatever that is to figure out what to do. And probably one of the most unreliable guides today that we look to instead of God's word would be our feelings or our emotions. That we look to how we feel to guide us in what we should do. For instance, sometimes people say, you should follow your heart. Almost every Disney movie says something like that. Follow your heart. But Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Or sometimes, well-meaning Christians say things like, Well, I knew this was the right thing to do because I had a peace about it. You had a peace about it. Did Jesus have a peace? about God's will for his life, that he should go to the cross. Well, let's see. Matthew chapter 26, verse 37 through 38. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus was not full of peace. He was full of sorrow as he contemplated God's will for his life. And so for us, Calvary, what that means is we shouldn't take God's word and try to conform it to our desires and our feelings. Instead, we need to take our desires and our feelings and conform them to God and his word. That's the standard. And so now that takes us to a third question of why did Paul pray what he prayed? What was the motivation? What drove him to pray for this? And what we see is that 
Paul had a desire to see the Colossians please Jesus. And because of that, he prayed for them. He longed to see them honor Christ with their lives. And so he prayed that God would fill them with a knowledge of his will. We see that in verse 10 through the beginning of verse 12. Look at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Look back at verse 10 with me for a moment. Look at those first three words. Paul says, so as to. These words are a clue telling us what Paul's purpose or his motive is for what he's praying. It'd be like me saying that David threw the ball to first base so as to get the runner out. This is Paul's motive or his purpose. And what is that motive? That the Colossians would please Christ. That they would walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. And then the rest of those verses unpack what does that look like? How are they to please Christ? So to please him by bearing fruit in good works, by increasing a knowledge of God, by being strengthened so they would persevere, and then finally, by giving thanks to God. That's what a life looks like that is pleasing to Christ. I think a great example of a life like this would be Eric Liddell, if you know who he is. He was an athlete. He was a Christian. And in 1924, Eric ran in the Olympics. And Eric was favored to win the 100-meter dash. But because the event was on a Sunday, he felt like he couldn't run in that race. And so instead, he ran in the 400, which wasn't his specialty, and he ended up winning. But more importantly, after that, Eric went to China to be a missionary. And then while he was in China, a very small thing happened. It was called World War II. And during that time, he was then sent to a Japanese internment camp. And after a few years in the camp, Eric died. And those who knew Eric in this camp had nothing but praise for his character, for his love, how he cared for people. And in 1981, a movie was made about Eric called Chariots of Fire. And in that movie, Eric has this incredible line, and I don't know if he actually said this. I don't, I don't know if they actually said it or not, but whoever wrote the script of the movie was either a genius or just really lucky. But here's what Eric says in this movie. I believe God made me for a purpose, for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run... I feel his pleasure. Notice two things about what Eric said. First, God has a purpose on his life. And Eric doesn't say, well, God, conform your purpose to my feelings. Instead, Eric is going to conform his life to God's purpose on his life. And then notice at the end, he doesn't say, when I run, I feel pleasure. And maybe he did. And if you guys know me, I would not feel any pleasure. That would be torturous. But instead, Eric says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Whose pleasure? Jesus. 
the Lord's. Eric lived in such a way as to honor Christ with his life, to please Christ with his life. And one way we can begin to do that is by asking a few questions very frequently and evaluating our lives based on them. And these questions come from a book I've mentioned last week, the book Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson. And in that book, Carson raises a couple questions for us to ask. Very simple, but I think very helpful. First, what would Jesus have me do? Second, what is speech or conduct worthy of him? Third, what sort of speech or conduct in this context should I avoid simply because it would shame him? And finally, what would please him the most? So Calvary, we've seen God's call for us to pray. We've seen the substance of what he's calling us to pray. And again, specifically, as we face false teaching. And then we just saw what should motivate that prayer. So finally, let's look at what is the foundation or the basis for that motive of pleasing Christ? Because God has redeemed us through Christ, we seek to honor Christ. Let me say that again. We seek to please Christ because God has redeemed us through Christ. Look at the middle, or rather, look at verse 12, excuse me. Verse 12 through verse 14 says, Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's go back to verse 12 for just a moment. Now, in your Bible, if you have the ESV, there is a comma after the word Father. And one thing I'm wondering, why didn't Paul just end there? Why wasn't it Father, and then instead of a comma, a period? Because we already know who the Father is. He mentioned him earlier in chapter 1. So why does he add all this extra information about him? It's to give us the reason for why we are to please Christ. In short, verse 14, because of the redemption we have in Christ, the forgiveness of sins. And what we need to make sure we understand is that we don't try to honor Jesus in order for him to redeem us. We honor Jesus because God has redeemed us through him already. Again, we're going to honor him because we've been redeemed, not to get redeemed. Now, this language of redemption comes from ancient slavery. And it's very straightforward. The idea is, right, you have a slave, and to set the slave free, somebody would have to pay a price. And so you pay the price, and then the slave is set free or redeemed. And it's very similar to how we might talk about today if somebody was, say, abducted, and now there's a ransom for that person. Usually somebody has to pay a price to set that person free. Now, if that was you, how would you feel if somebody set you free? You'd feel happy. You'd be very thankful, right? Verse 12, you would give thanks. How would you treat the person who set you free? You would honor that person. 
Hopefully you might even try to live a life that was worthy of that person. And so, Calvary, this gets to the good news of the gospel. That on the cross, Jesus paid the ultimate price to set us free. And he paid it because he surrendered his life and his desires to God's will. So now we thank and we praise God because the cross was enough. And Jesus is sufficient. So let's pray. Our sufficient God, you are not served by human hands as if you needed anything. Rather, you give everyone life and breath and everything else. So please give us a deep knowledge of your will through your word so that we would please Jesus in every situation. We pray this in his name. Amen.